Around this time every year, I am required by law to tell my favorite New Year's Eve story of all time. It was the winter of 1996. I was a 24-year-old writer, home in New York for the holidays. My friend Dan worked for a major corporation in the city, and he told me that one of his coworkers was having the New Year's Eve party to end New Year's Eve parties. So we decided to go. Dan, me, a couple of other guys. Dan actually had to secure passes from the host, whose apartment was a stone's throw from the Times Square ball drop. So on the night of December 31st, we all met at Dan's apartment, then walked to Times Square. We handed a couple of police officers our passes, and they led us through a barricade. The apartment building where the guy lived was beautiful. A lobby with plush carpets, expensive paintings, piped-in classical music. We took the elevator to the penthouse, and we were greeted warmly by the host. You guys are the first ones here, he said, but make yourselves at home. So we did. The bar was loaded, the food was spectacular, and the goals were pretty clear. Have fun, get drunk, hopefully meet some women, hook up. You know, we were young. Then, gradually, guests began to arrive. Two men walked in, then three men walked in, three more men walked in, four men walked in, five men walked in. And finally, my friend Paul looked at me. Jeff, he said, I think this is a gay New Year's party. And it wasn't awkward. It was just joyful. As the clock counted down toward midnight, I stood on the guy's balcony, a bottle of bubbly in my hand, surrounded by, uh, I don't know, 150 gay men. And when 1996 arrived, everyone around us started yelling and cheering, then making out. One big simultaneous makeout session. And I realized at that moment, I'd be telling this story and smiling for a long, long time. Happy New Year. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Chris Long, the two-time Super Bowl champion defensive end, the 2018 Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year, and the current host of the excellent Greenlight Podcast. And I brought Chris here today to do something I've always wanted to try, namely break down all the tricks and nooks and crannies that we journalists use on athletes and see what an athlete actually thinks of it all. Trust me, it's a fun one. This is episode number 241. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Chris, first of all, you definitely have the coolest setup of anyone who's done this podcast in four years. What's the crown jewel of what I'm looking at? Like, what do you, is it the Gleason journey, uh, the trophies? Yeah, you know, it's funny, because, like, we didn't have wallpaper for years, and it felt like I was in just, the, like, an interrogation room. Cause the walls were gray and everything. You spend so much time in your set. Like it kind of almost hurts your head. So the wallpaper is awesome, but uh, I don't know, probably a Steve Gleason Jersey. And that includes these two replica um, trophies here because I, I just love Steve. In fact, I got a Steve hat on too. I'm like a billboard for the Steve Gleason foundation. Steve is uh is one of the finest people I know and, and, a, and a friend like later in my life and somebody who I draw a lot of inspiration from. So we, we rotate jerseys, but it means a lot of all the jerseys I've traded in the NFL. He's up there and we didn't trade on the field. You know what I mean? Uh, I asked for one, like a fan. Does everyone get a trophy? Like if you win the Super Bowl, do you actually, does everyone on the team get a replica trophy? Everybody gets a ring, but you actually got to go buy a replica trophy. So there's somebody making bank on dudes who walk off the field and they're like, yeah, I got the money. You make all that playoff money and you're not going to have, you're not going to not have trophies in your office. But the funny thing is these are actually my dad's. They're like the Super Bowls we won, but my dad got two made for him 
in his office because he was very proud of his son. But I need some at my house. So I have two trophies at my house. And then I went over to dad's house one night when I started the podcast and just kind of scooped them up and was like, dad, like you didn't win these, man. Like I need these for the for the studio. So great dad I have. I've been stealing his clothes my whole life and now uh, his trophies. So what I want to do, and I think you're the right guy for this, yeah. is take everything I have learned and everything people who listen to this podcast, which is mostly journalists have learned, and almost like test it out. See how this floats from the complete other perspective, the guy yeah. who's getting it. So when you're in the NFL yeah. and you're on a team, do you give a shit about the media? Like we come in to the locker room or we want an interview. Yeah. Do you give a shit? I do give a shit because I like I care about accountability and you guys are like a conduit for accountability. So, you know, like I played eight years and everybody has I played eight years in St. Louis. Everybody has different shaping factors when it comes to who they are, like 34 in the NFL, if you're lucky enough to get there. By the time I was in Philly, like I was fine with talking to the Philly media, man. Like we're talking about games we win and occasionally lose. Like you guys are, you guys give a shit. That's the problem. Like the people in Philly care a lot about football. Like this, when I was in St. Louis, every Sunday and every Monday morning, uh, you'd have a, you know, a bunch of reporters come in and ask you why you lost 40 to 10. And there was like no respite from that. So like you had to be accountable and you know, there's a responsibility that comes with playing in the NFL. Like we make a lot of money. It's awesome in a lot of ways. If you're on a bad team, it's tough, but it's also tough for the fans. So they want to hear you stand up there and be real. And you know, you don't have to give a dissertation on which gap and who was out of what gap and that sort of thing and whose fault it was. And you don't have to be totally self-deprecating and just bury yourself after a loss, but like, just be accountable. And so I know that beat writers have a really hard job. I know when they walk in the locker room that they're trying to make something out of nothing a lot of days, especially in the NFL season. And uh, I respect that, but they also have to respect that we're playing a game too. And I think as long as everybody respects everybody, it can be a symbiotic relationship. But if, if there's an imbalance and somebody's not holding up their end of the bargain, it can be a problem. And, and sometimes uh, very rarely you do have to tell media members that like, Hey, not now. Or why are you asking me that question? That's an unfair question that puts me in a bad spot. I've had really stern conversations with media members and then been cool with them afterwards. They have a job to do as long as you don't like uh, overtly just fuck me and just, you know, burn me in that situation. I'm never going to talk to you again, maybe, um, or avoid you or make your life more difficult as a media member. If you're honest and we communicate, we can all do our jobs, you know? And I know that's probably like almost NFL player teaching tape there, but like I came up on a team that lost a lot and the fans want to hear what you have to say, you know, otherwise I'd be copping out. What's the biggest conflict you've had with a reporter? One time in college, a guy, uh, I was talking shit about Miami. Miami came in to play us and uh, it was, I forget which year it was, maybe my junior year. And there was a quarterback they had, uh, you know, that talked about how many points they wanted to put up. And uh, he fell short by like 30 points. And so after the game, I reminded the media of that. And one guy like intentionally misquoted me and like made a joke of it that I couldn't do math. So there was a conversation that followed that. And then after that, me and the guy didn't talk a lot. I've also had like prominent reporters call me and say, I really want to do this feature with you. And then get me on the phone for 30 minutes and then paraphrase everything I say. 
Like that's a big pet peeve of mine. If you call me and you present it as a quote, like in a Q and a article format, like not only am I making your job easier, but you're also just fudging it. And that wasn't part of the deal. So I've had a firm conversation about that. Uh, I don't know that I ever remember exploding on a media member. I think that at times like I was short and I said like very firmly, not now, or that's not the right question, or I'm not comfortable answering that question, but I've never really had to be, I've never, I, I got mad at Jacina Anderson once online, but I wasn't playing, you know, like the, most of my media gripes come after I play because now I'm like paying more attention to it. To your point, like in the locker room, my exposure to the media is like, if somebody profusely just kicks your shit on in on first take and it's unfair, you're going to know. But generally the only time we, we notice each other is in that open locker room. Unless your Google alert pops and your mom calls and is like, Hey, this guy's talking bad about you. Post football. I've actually noticed more pet peeves that I have about the media. Like during football, I'm like, I get paid a lot of money. It's a necessary evil. Sometimes it's also something that can help you just be real. And now after, now I'm on the other side of it. I probably have more stuff that I have gripes about. What do you mean gripes? Well, the media landscape is vast and there's a lot of access and there should be. Otherwise I wouldn't be sitting here podcasting from like my hometown and whatever, but I just think there's a lot of access and, and there's a lot of different ways to that people want to do their jobs nowadays. And in, in football, like ultimately I think it's one of the hardest sports to really understand what's going on on the field. I think, I don't know about you, Jeff, but like, would you, I mean, if you ranked them as far as like really knowing what the hell is going on, baseball and basketball are definitely easier to, once you know the, the all the intricacies of baseball, you kind of, it's like a plug and play thing right. and you can have different takes football. There's a lot going on at once. It's a team game. You don't know who got burnt. You don't know who got beaten, what coverage you don't know whose gap was what you don't know if, if uh, a quarterback overthrows a ball, like whose fault that was, maybe he was protecting the wide receiver. Maybe the wide receiver ran the wrong route, vice versa. I just think there's a lot of speculation that goes like wildly unchecked. And I do it too. Like sometimes I'll be wrong, but there's also not a lot of accountability. And I also think that people are just so competitive in a way that's like unsettling to me. It's like a different competition than playing sports. It's like people will cheat to win in the media now, take shortcuts, oh, be yeah. sensationalist. I mean, like that's just, it's clickbaity. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people take quotes out of context. I'd almost like to petition that if you're going to put a quote on like a graphic, you have to include the audio. Like, I really think that we're borderline in a, in a stage with Twitter and the way people consume things in little bites, that if you're going to provide a little bite to get your click, you should include the audio. So you get the tone and you get the context around the quote um, because people are so lazy now because of the access and the multitudes of ways that you can consume the media that they're, they're just going to take stuff and run with it. And it makes me afraid to talk about certain things. You know, like it makes me afraid to be honest on somebody else's show sometimes because you're afraid of somebody pulling out a quote. Like I was talking about Troy Aikman and his comments on OBJ, which is a nuanced conversation. You know, like, should we be talking more about Robert Woods? Is OBJ going to distract Matt Stafford? Is it his fault if he distracts Matt Stafford? Is Maybe OBJ just shows up and just fucking breathes and it distracts Matt Stafford. That's not to say it's his fault. Aikman speculated that it was starting already Sunday. And I was podcasting yesterday and I said, I agree with Troy Aikman and pause. And I was like, to a degree, but like, blah, blah, blah. Now I cut that from our podcast. Those four words. I agree with Troy Aikman. 
because I could see it on a score like the score, like mm-hmm. Chris Long, bold letters, picture of me looking like Macho Man in my uniform. Or you always come across the wrong way when somebody just condenses something down into three or four words. And it's really hard to do that. And that's probably my biggest gripe now. It's the sensationalism, it's the lack of accountability, the competitive, like we'll eat each other alive to get the story and be first or like, you know, that type of thing. But also the the condensation of like an entire soundbite into three words can really fuck people. So yeah, I got a whole bunch of pet peeves about the way media is consumed now. The other day, a guy I've never heard of, a baseball writer named Michael Balco tweeted out, one MLB insider has mentioned to me that Carlos Correa to the Tigers is a quote, done deal. That sums up the bullshit of the modern media more than yeah. anything I've seen all the time. MLB insider could be the GM of the Yankees. It could be the barista who gives him his coffee. It could be anything. That's not breaking news. I'm with you. You can't have people's imaginations running wild. Like you can't leave people all this room to speculate. You know, you went through it with the OBJ thing last week. And I think there was a degree if I had to speculate of him being indecisive, like the guy hasn't been recruited in 10 years. He's leaving Cleveland. He's miserable. He probably wants to play the game a little bit. I'm surprised he didn't have the hat thing. You know, like there's some of that, but also like there doesn't need to be all this back and forth. And and I want to be there first. And Hey, I don't understand. Another thing is like when you source something, like when you're the source, why do you share it? Why isn't the person that broke it to the head guy at ESPN or at NFL network getting the credit for breaking that story. Yeah. You know, like the shared source thing. I don't get that. I'm not mad at it. I just don't get it. And if I was one of those people that got the story the first time, I'd want to be credited. The the biggest thing that's hurt media and definitely sports media, but media in general is as you alluded to the rush to be first that I need to break the story. And you're right. If you said that on your podcast, somebody would come out long. I agree with Aikman. And then in his own words, it's like bashes OBJ. And that would get the clicks, 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 clicks. Yeah. is exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. It's part of the reason I've kind of slowed down talking about, you know, like on in certain, some of the tough topics that I love talking about as a player, you know, social justice issues or, you know, I love talking about, them. I'd rather not have to fucking talk about them if we had our shit together, but like, you know, you want to advocate and say, and, and sometimes like when I played at the tail end of my career, there were some turbulent conversations going on that sort of thing. Like, I don't enjoy talking about them as much as like somebody who can affect change through my platform as a podcaster or as somebody on social media because of this very thing. Even when people think they're helping you, they put your quotes in bold letters and make you look like Captain America. And it's off putting to me. It's like people listening. I don't blame them for thinking you have a hero syndrome. If you talk about social justice because of the way people will slap you on a big, bold quote and put you in a football uniform picture that give me the whole nuance point that somebody's trying to make. The more serious something is, the more nuanced that point should be. And the provision of that nuance should be important to, to fans, but fans drive the experience. If they don't want to read for more than 15 seconds, then we're kind of fucked. You know what I mean? It's like, and I've fallen victim to that. I'm a smart guy. I've gotten online and like read the headline of an article and been like, Oh, let me take this to the bank. So it's tricky, man. I could go on about my pet peeves, but there's a reason I'm doing this where I'm doing it in the format. I'm doing it. It works for me. Um, the other stuff, it's just a little too, like, uh, maybe I'm not that competitive. Maybe all my competitive juice is gone from playing. Like I never want to have to like 
compete with another media member. That seems like totally lame to me. Yeah. My interest in being first on Twitter is literally zero. Yeah. And also like, it's hard to criticize people anymore because everybody's so, I don't think the players are necessarily any more sensitive than, than they were before. I think that like when I played in the beginning, if in 2008, I was criticized on ESPN, I'd probably be pissed at that, that guy or lady that's criticizing me because I'm a competitor. I'm biased. I'm going through it. They don't understand everything that I understand about the context of the situation. You know, somebody could criticize me about not playing well my first or second year in St. Louis. And I'm like, fuck, look around. Have you watched the tape? Like no one's playing well here. I'm 23 years old. Like I'm not Julius Peppers, you know, nowadays though, I think the media has gotten so internet-y that if you criticize a player, you're automatically a hater. You know, like, I think that like, that's one of my biggest fears when I have to acknowledge somebody's misstep or acknowledge somebody's poor play or just be honest and not even make it personal. I'm not having fun at a player's expense. If that gets back to a player, that's one thing I might have to deal with a pissed off player, but you also have like this media contingency that they pick storylines that they want to kind of play out. And if you, and if you criticize a player that that's the flavor of the month or this sort of thing, like everybody calls you a hater. And I just think that everybody's afraid to be disagreeable in a weird way. And I think it's Twitter. I think Twitter created that atmosphere. If I could go back in time, I've said this a million times to people I know, and have Twitter never be, never just be a thing. I mean, in fact, I would do that with cell phones. I really would. I'd just be like, yeah, I'm in. Oh, I would totally blow up Twitter. And here's an example of it. Like if I had tweeted in August, we're getting out over our skis with Chase Young. Here's an example. I've used this a bunch because I've said for two years that people are putting the cart before the horse with a Chase Young. And by the way, I think he's a good player. And I think he works his ass off. He plays his ass off. I'd love to play with a guy like Chase Young. But because I say we're getting out over our skis or something like that, if I had tweeted that in August, people would have ripped me to shreds. The guy had higher odds to go DPOY than, than Joey Bosa. We were out over our skis, but I would have gotten ripped apart. You know, if I say something even mildly negative about OBJ right now, even though I actually like OBJ, like if I were just being kind of agnostic and taking my emotions out of the situation and saying, well, I think Robert Woods is a better player for LA right now, or maybe he does put the pressure on, on Matt Stafford that we're worried about, but it's not his fault. Like people just jump you because they have, you know, you're, you're being a hater or this, that, and the third and being a former player, it's like a minefield because you're supposed to like, supposed to not tear down guys in the league, but you also like for people to trust me, I have to be able to criticize players. I have to be able to at least offer the, the other side of the sunshine and rainbows thing, because otherwise like you're not going to come to me for analysis. Now, why do you care if people like you've referenced haters a few times, like, I don't know. You've made your money. You've had a great career, blah, blah, blah. You have a reputation. You got two Super Bowl trophies sitting behind you. What do you care if people hate on you on Twitter? It's not even hating on me. I'm saying, call me a hater. You know what I mean? Like, like say to me, like there's this sense sometimes as a former player, there is a line. You don't go over that line and make it personal and criticizing a player, but sometimes you do have to criticize a player. And I think some people would prefer that you don't criticize players at all. And I think part of this comes out of like people like we have this, it is a little echo chambery on there in sports media. And uh, on top of it, you've got players who 
I don't know. They're, they're reading their mentions, dude. Like, so they can retweet you and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then everybody's like, yeah, man, what are you talking about? It's just like the nuance is not there, man. Like the nuance is not there. Everything's in shorter condensed bites and you can pull little bites out. And it's frustrating sometimes talking about one of the most complicated sports to talk about in the media. Well, when there's, there's no tone and there's no nuance, it's very hard to have a reasoned discussion of any sort. You know, the tone is big. I don't know about you writing books and like, it must be something you're like, maybe it doesn't even come across in the audio book sometimes, but it's hard to get a tone across maybe in writing too. I feel like in a book, it's not on Twitter. It's almost impossible. And it's harder on Twitter than in a book. Oh yeah. Because it's all short little bursts. Yeah. The thing I don't understand about Twitter is I hate it, but I use it a lot. Like I hate it. I actually, it's a drug. It's a drug. It's insidious. And I would not have an account if I didn't have a podcast. I have been fantasizing about just going like Goodbye. completely off the grid and I can't do it because this podcast thing sucked me in. I know. I'm <laughs> the same way. I'm always like, if I never had to sell another book, Facebook, goodbye, Twitter, goodbye. Do you think it matters? How much do you think it matters? Like, I think it matters like, a lot. A lot. It matters a lot when you're trying to get a book deal and people say, oh, you have this number of followers and you can get these people. You know, it matters. Because it's been, it's like a commodity now. It sucks. I'm a, uh, I'm working on my 10th book, right? That's a lot of books over uh, whatever 17 year span. And you would think at this point in my career, it wouldn't matter at all. Yeah. And if you're Michael Lewis or Stephen King, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same thing probably with like a Bill Simmons or somebody that like, well, he loves social media. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, Dan Levitar gets on Twitter a lot. But he also has people signing his tweets, Dan. So I don't know if he's picking up his phone. Like, I'd like to get to the point where I can sign my tweets, Chris. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, that'd be fucking cool. In the NFL locker room. All right, so yeah. I was a, my main gig was a, I was a major league baseball writer for Sports Illustrated before I started doing books. And I hated the locker room, right? Hated the locker room. Hated the clubhouse. With every pass on my body, I hated it. Because I was fully aware that it was the cool kids and the geeks. And I was the geek. Just by nature of being a member of the media, I'm the geek. You guys can afford to go buy your clothes there. I'm trying to buy clothes that look like I'm buying there shopping at Marshall's. You know, like um, I have a pen and pad in my hand. I weigh 80 pounds less than most of these guys. I don't have my, you know, like everything about it. I need to come up to you. You don't need to come up to me. It's the worst fucking dynamic ever for a member of the media. Yeah. How aware are you as a player that you have the power in this dynamic and that these are kind of the losers over there and we're the cool kids over here? When I was in it, I didn't think about it that way because to be honest, it's nice to talk to like I'd have a media member or two that like I was cool with, you know, like I'm never going to be giving them unnamed source shit because that's one of my biggest pet peeves in the world. And we had a lot of that in Philly. But like I had one or two guys that I actually enjoyed shooting the shit with for five minutes after open locker room, like might catch them in the hallway when everybody's on the way to lunch, like. I'm a normal guy, so I can't speak for other players, but like I was a sports fan before I was a athlete. And I think like probably any media member before they were a media member was a sports fan. And, you know, like I love, there's a great part about being in a D line room or being on a football team, like birds of a feather, all that stuff, like it, the dysfunction, the craziness, like the, we're just, we're just a bunch of peas in a pod, but it's nice to get a break from that and see somebody at work who's, you know, who's not crazy like us or that sort of thing. Like, you know, there were a couple guys that, well, I still talk to Jim Thomas in St. Louis. Well, he's in Kansas city now, I think, um, 
you know, I, I talked to certain guys that I'd run into in, uh, in Philly, like in, if you look at like Derek Gunn and Brandon Graham's relationship, there are plenty of friendships that pop up out of that relationship. And I think most of it is like, I know it's easy to say, but like, if you do your job with integrity and you're not like a hitman, and you know, you respect that symbiotic relationship. I think the guys who aren't going to treat you well are guys you don't worry about, have to worry about being friends with. Like, right. you know, who wants to be a friend with somebody that's going to treat somebody shitty just cause they're in, just cause they're a beat writer. Like there, you, there has to be a certain level of respect for each other, you know? And until that, that trust is broken, I think media members are hardworking dudes. Like, you know, like I, I got a lot of respect for those guys. So I'm not, I, I was aware that I could say something and be an asshole and like kind of, I had power in that relationship, but also media members have a lot of power. They have a different kind of power. It's less of a, a you know, like an overt bully pulpit. You know, it's like, I can yell at a reporter if he asks a stupid question, and embarrass that person in, in a pool full of reporters, but a reporter cannot say dick the whole time, misquote me, push on name sources can tweet misinformation pro football focus can tweet your grade out and everybody thinks you suck. You know what I mean? Like there's all types of analytics people now that, and I love analytics that if used irresponsible, irresponsibly can kind of baseball people that vote on the hall of fame. There's so much power in that, you know, like uh, football, yeah. the writers that vote for the hall of fame, there's so much power in that. So in some ways, both parties can really abuse that relationship. There's a, uh, a writer who uh, used to cover the Cincinnati Reds for the Dayton Daily News named Hal McCoy. And he told me, uh, I don't know if you remember, there used to be an outfielder named George Foster for the Cincinnati Reds. And he was the, uh, he's older, but he, he won the MVP twice. And he won to okay. and he was always kind of an ass to the media. And all of a sudden his, uh, his Hall of Fame, it's been five years and he's on the, on the ballot. And all of a sudden he's calling all the media members to check in and see oh, how they're doing. That's good. And they're basically that's like, good. yeah, no. You that's know. good. That's some good shit too. But I mean, you know, you just hope that it's like the same thing with T.O. Like T.O.'s relationship with the media should matter zero. You know what I mean? Like when, and he got in, I mean, like they have to be able to do their job agnostically there. The only way a media member can get in trouble in my opinion and in, in like carrying that process out is when they bring their personal feelings. And the unfortunate reality is, Somebody could be a huge asshole in the locker room, but be, and I'm not saying T.O. was, by the way, for the record, because I love yeah. T.O. And he's been so cool to me. But like some guys you've never heard of could be a huge dick to media members. And they might be the guy that you got to push through because it's the right thing to do. So I also think there's a fine line between a guy who's like too shy for the media and maybe uncomfortable doing that. And like, how do you push that person to be available in open locker room? Like I had teammates that, would go in the other room, like would go get treatment because open locker room was happening. Not because they don't want to be accountable. Cause they're just not like, like me, I can have a conversation with the guy at the bus stop. Like who the fuck cares? Like, you know, I like people and, and also I'm pretty wide open. So, but some guys don't like that. They didn't come up. Like I came up, they might have trust issues with the media. Somebody might've burned them. You know, it's, it's one of those things, man. You just gotta, like, if you're a media member, I think your best strategy it's like community like policing or something like just know everybody in the neighborhood bro like it's going to be a lot better off if you know who's who and you you don't just try to hard ass a guy who doesn't want to have a conversation like if if player x wants to walk in the other room like why are you chasing him maybe the best strategy would be a day that he's available and looks like he's in a good mood try to make that intro 
my whole uh, philosophy with books is um, interview everyone. Like my, my, uh, I wrote a Brett Favre biography. Favre is not very helpful. My whole philosophy was <laughs> I'm going to call everybody who played with Brett Favre. The, I always say the undrafted running back in camp from Bucknell. Yeah. He's Brett Favre. Isn't going to remember that guy. He was there for yeah. weeks, but that guy's going to remember every experience he had with Brett Favre. Yes. So like I do think too often we in the media after a game, we'll go running to Chris Long, right? Yeah. We're, we're running to Chris Long, but the guy who's like the backup defensive lineman who's yeah. 20 snaps is in every meeting you're in. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, you can get some information from guys who are really willing to, to talk like you're exactly right. What broke down on this play? Well, don't go ask the starting Mike linebacker if he's not the most accountable. Go ask a guy who might. If I was playing the game, I'd go to the guy who's posting more Snapchats than getting snaps. Oh, uh, yeah. That's good. Actually. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Go to that guy. Go to the fourth corner. He's like, oh, the camera's in my face. Well, that was covered too. And it was a safety. And like, you know, it's just so. Wait, I have a question I've, I've never asked an athlete. And I've been waiting to ask for years. It just, I finally, here's my moment. Yeah. I think one thing we do in the media, especially with football, that is kind of bullshit is we'll go like, we'll talk to you and we'll be like, it's after a game. And we'll say, so how does the team feel about blank? Right. How does the team feel about blank? Yeah. And you're in a room with 60 something guys. Like your team is 60 something guys. Yeah. Like, right. Is that how, how do I, how do I aggregate that? that how feeling? could you possibly know what the, what the, what we, is there, so I'm actually being serious. Is there yeah. a we, is there actually truly a we in football that one can actually speak for? I think that leadership and veterans can speak for that type of thing. Like we've had a good week. We feel like blah, blah, blah. But especially right after a game, how do we know how we, I haven't been on the bus yet. Like I've been on the bus after losses. And by the way, chances are we're probably most of the time after loss going to be like, we feel terrible about it. Even if we don't know yet how guys are going to feel like, but I've been on team planes where you could hear a pin drop after loss. I've been on team planes where guys were just out of gas and all you could do was laugh. Like, you know what I mean? So the kind of like temperature taking can be hard for an individual, but it can also be especially hard, like right after a game, you know? And I know that that access point right after the game, here's what I'd ask then this, I used to talk to Jeff McLean about this in, in Philly. Why the fuck can y'all walk in and we are like half naked, bro? You know what I mean? Like in no other workplace in America, can you just, Hey, you're expected to be putting your clothes on and somebody's going to talk to you and there's going to be cameras, not just, there's going to be people in there. And like, I'm going to be like pulling my pants up. Right. Oh, one second, you know, or like Brandon Graham has 40 reporters around him. My locker's right next to him and somebody's bumping into my naked ass. Like I'm at work. I feel like because we get paid so much money and because we're macho dudes that everybody's just like, well, fuck them. Wait, I just want to say a few things about this. It's a great question. Yeah. yeah. Number one, as I said earlier, being in the locker room sucks for a reporter. Yeah, like, I know y'all don't it, enjoy it. I'm I just saying. It. And I'm going to tell you something. I've never expressed this before, but it's true. You are terrified that someone actually thinks you're looking at their dick. Like you're like, you could be stuck in and staring at your notepad. Like you're not, right? Or maybe you are. Maybe you're like, maybe in your head, you're like, holy shit, that guy's. Well, the big problem is like, if you're standing next to somebody naked, you can't do this because they're like, oh, you're trying to avoid looking down there and you can't look them right in the eyes because there's periphery. It's a tough job you guys have, man. What are you supposed to do? But it's a tough job for us. If you think about it, like what other workplace in America would that be okay? And I know that there's no way around it because players leave after games and that sort of thing. But I've thought like, 
when I, when I floated this to certain reporters and I'm not going to include Jeff in this because he was very patient with me in my dissertation on how this fucked up, but like, they were like dismissive of it. Like, you'll be okay. I'm like, Oh, so you, you see my balls every day and all I get is a, you'll be okay. Like not only that, but like <laughs> your lifeblood you're, you're is talking to me and I'm providing you a story and I got to do it naked. And I just, that's the way it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of fucked up. If you think Wait, about it, I'll even say something else. I'll tell you something. I'll take you to a different place. I am a strong, strong believer that women and men need to have the exact same access. There's no question. Yes. about it. You can let yeah. men in and other women. Yeah. But when people are like in the past, like Sam Weiss was an example, he did not want women in the locker room. Right. Right. It's a violation of my player's privacy. But, and everyone was like, oh, this Neanderthal. Like, I get it. Like, I actually well, yeah, it's conflation of like, hey, ac- you know, access to the industry. And like, I don't know how it goes in women's sports. I don't know if men reporters are allowed to go in there. Well, but I just couldn't imagine it going the other way, <laughs> if I'm being Not honest. Sure. And I might get five people listening. This might be like, <gasps> I, if you're listening to this and you're shocked, I said that, like, fucking talk it out to its logical end. Like, you are expecting me to be naked as part of my job description, possibly, and get hit with a throng of 30 people that want to know why I wasn't in the B gap. And they don't even know who was supposed to be in the B gap or the C gap on that play. Like, so not only do I have to ask the hardest questions known to man, but like, I also have to do it while I'm putting on my, uh, my sweatpants and all that stuff. And I just think it's an interesting dynamic of like, and football is thought of a lot of the times as kind of like we are cattle. And so I think it's a very cattle thing, high paid cattle, but a very cattle thing to like, just be like, uh, Hey, move out of the way, change a little bit over there. Your locker's here. Like we're interviewing this guy or, Hey, you know, you walk into the shower and you're seeing 30 strangers. Also not for nothing. You are cattle to the owners for the most part. I'm not trying to dark, like someone else is going to be wearing your uniform number next year. And they're not going to be able to see your face anyway. Cause it's, you wear a helmet when you play like, dude, when, when you get hurt in practice, Jeff, like you ever heard of move the drill? Yeah, of course. Yeah, just move the fucking drill. Like, it's not like I saw a guy, an ambulance came to pick up a guy and we moved the drill. Like there was an ambulance picking a guy up because he landed on a football in a practice during the playoffs one year. And uh, he like collapsed something that you don't need collapse. I don't know if it was a lung or he punctured something. And we just moved the drill, you know? So like, and we're conditioned to be okay with that. So like, I'm not complaining about it. I'm not saying I like, I have like PTSD from moving the drill, but I'm just saying like, that tells you everything you need to know. It's all about the outcome and you're the most expendable in football than you are in any major American sport, probably in my opinion. I mean, the, the, the shelf life is the shortest hockey players, very physical sport, marathon seasons, tougher than football in a lot of ways but the average length of career is longer. So like when you occupy a seat at that table, I feel like you, you, you do it for longer. And in football, you're always getting replaced. It's the ultimate young man sport. And unless you're a quarterback, who gives a shit? Wait, there are a few things I want to say about this. And this has yeah. nothing to do with journalism, but I love this yeah. topic. Yeah. So I live out here in Southern California. Yeah. Three years ago, Todd Gurley was one of the five biggest athletes in Southern California, probably. Right. I don't even know if he gets recognized by 50% of the people. If he's walking outside the stadium right now, you know, like, yeah. and he's not even 30 years old. It's insane <laughs> how quickly you go from here. And this is what I want to know. Does there come a point in a career where you become like you're drafted? It's a big deal. You're drafted number two overall. You're the man. Yeah. The money's yeah. coming famous signing autographs. Here's my Jersey. I'm holding. 
does there come a point in a career where all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I really am just cattle. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, for sure. But I also wouldn't say that like getting drafted St. Louis, it's like immediate, like, right. Hey, we've got it. So what was interesting for me was the prime of my career was spent in the dark a little bit, no disrespect to people in St. Louis because they showed up, but like outside that, it's not a market you see generally. And we sucked. So by the time I got to good teams, I was feeling the cattle thing. Like, you know, when you're older with the new CBA, they're trying to run you out. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to pay older guys and, and, you know, it's tantalizing youth and like a blank slate and the ego of coaches like that. That's a combination that means bad news for older players. So like two equal players. In fact, you could go to go to camp and compete with a 23 year old guy at 33 and you could beat that guy out like clear as day. Uh, but they're not going to see things that way because coaches are always like, well, I can get more out of that young guy because I know who the 33 year old is. And that 33 year old is going to cost more. So by the end of my career, I did, I did kind of feel like, uh, man, you are just super replaceable. Like people move on fast and then retirement. I kind of had that in my head already. So I, I wasn't phased by kind of like for some people, what must be very jarring, which is like, when you stop, they don't give a shit. Like people do not give a shit about you anymore. They can, they, they come in and out of your life, but they don't care about you the same way as they cared about you when, when they played. They're not wearing your jersey unless you're a Hall of Famer 10 years later at games. Like I see a stray Chris Long at a Rams game because I was there for a very long time, but yeah, in LA, but they're not like people move on. And so, and that goes for your endeavors off the field. You know, like that's why like me starting a podcast is a grind because, you know, it's not like you're a player anymore raising money and my foundation's different, the whole thing. So you're replaceable on the field. You're replaceable to fans. And I don't blame them. Like, I don't blame them. I don't need them to continue to adore me and I'm not producing for their favorite team. Like, so you just have to be ready at the end of your career for being like kind of ushered out the door in so many ways. And then after your career, just kind of moving on and doing the next thing. Cause, cause stadiums, fan bases, organizations, they move on like, and it's fine. You just have to be ready for that. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a book about the nineties Dallas Cowboys and I was interviewing a, uh, they had a cornerback named uh, Clayton Holmes out of Carson Newman. And he was at a bar in Dallas one day and Tony Dorsett was there. He told me the story. He said, um, someone comes up to him and he's like, Hey, Clayton Holmes, I want to buy you a drink. How about you? Yeah. Clayton Holmes is like, no, nah, I'm good. And Tony Dorsett comes up to him and goes, I'm telling you right now, take the drink because they're not going to remember you five years. From now. <laughs> exactly, dude. Exactly. It's so true. Only a few guys really get, get, get that love like forever. And, uh, and you know what? I don't know if I would want that kind of adulation forever. Kind of like a fake life, you know, like I want to move on to the next thing, you know, like it's cool. I hope people respect what I did. I hope people are like, man, that guy could play football. Like, or that guy was a great teammate or that sort of thing. But like, it's not healthy to just, right. to, I think one of the hardest things about being in football media is every Sunday that I talk about football, 20% of me, that competitiveness is unlocked and I'm back on the field in a way. I would be so much further moved on from football if I didn't have to talk about it every week. There is like an innate sense. And I think that sometimes being in football media can be an unhealthy way to stay involved in the game of like competitiveness. Cause you're going to watch all the games and you're going to talk about guys. And sometimes you're going to be like, I could play st like I, you know, I could do that. I, why is this guy getting so much attention? When I did that, they didn't give me any love. Like, 
these are very human things and they pop up when you're a media member. So you really have to be like good and moved on from the game to be healthy. If you're going to stay in it, you know what I mean? Because that can also boil up some resentment, you know, under the surface for guys, some, you know, some like kind of ugly feelings. Before we continue at two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. This is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and I'm not going to lie. This is my least favorite time of year. Why Papa? It's just so bleak. All the lights come down, dead trees lying by the garbage cans, useless gifts piling up and collecting dust. It gets cold. It's dark early. I hate it. Uh, I used to feel that way too. Used to? Yeah. Then one day, I snuck into your wallet, stole your credit card, and ordered $10,000 worth of throwback jerseys, hats, t-shirts, and sweatshirts from RoyalRetros.com. The place for all your old school sports gear. It made me and 300 of my closest friends very happy. Got the Christmas blues? Start wearing Reggie Collier Orlando Renegade jerseys. It cures everything and brings the happiness back to January. Wait, you used my credit card? Think of it this way. Therapy would have cost even more. Is there a temptation to see players what they do now? And even though you say you're not supposed to, like to be the old man saying, we didn't do it that way. You can't do it that way. What do yeah. you do? Like, do you feel that? I think there's a way to do it because my generation of player was like the first generation of player that really reaped the, the, the like kind of grandiose benefits of, Hey, all the, everything guys from my dad's era did, you know, my dad, I've told this story a couple times the past couple weeks, defensive player a year. I don't know exactly what he made. I don't think he made a million dollars that year. He made all his money at Fox, you know, like guys that played in his era in the nineties, like they were on the cusp of enjoying this huge windfall of cash that football is bringing to life for this generation of players. So I totally get the resentment that the last generation always has for the next generation. In a lot of ways. But I've also been on the other side of it where people were like, yo, fuck this kid. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's no way you should give that kid that much money coming out of college just before the new CBA, no matter who you are. Like, there's vets on your team that, that you know, you're making more than the first day you walk in. They got a decade under their belt and they're better players than you. And, um, and I think that part of it is unfair. So I have a really unique perspective being in that kind of 11-year period that I was in to see social media, to see big TV deals, to see like, the salaries hike up and then stabilize on the young players to see the way the game change. And like, I can see both sides of it. So I think if you're fair and again, your tone is correct, like you can kind of bust balls of the new generation, but also respect that the game's always going to change. And while the older guys are tougher, maybe we're better, you know, while, you know, while I got to tip my cat to t- cap to Conrad Dobler or some defensive end in the eighties, like, I think I'm a better pass rusher but you're tougher than me. And you guys got me where I, where I, you know, could support my family for the rest of my life. And so I'm appreciative. Um, but you gotta, you gotta be able to understand both sides of it. The last generation's perspective and yours. First of all, you got big points for the Conrad Dobler reference. Yeah, dude. He came into St. Louis one day. Um, we were getting our flu shots. I think it was, and he was doing flu shots. I got a flu shot from Conrad Dobler. (laughs) Did you know he was working in healthcare at some point? Oh, he was like the dirtiest player in the NFL. That was his whole thing. I thought he was going to stab me in the neck. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, fuck. I walked in and I was like, is that like, and I'm a kind of an old, old soul a little bit. So I know some of the older players. Like I was like, I had to go back in the hall to Google to make sure it was him. And I was like, fuck, man, is he just going to like spaz out on me? This guy's like, yeah. 
That's awesome. He's he's nuts, bro. Wait, I have an interesting question for you. Maybe interesting. Yeah. yeah. I uh, I have a friend who covers the Raiders for uh, for ESPN, and a great reporter. Uh, his name's Paul Gutierrez. He's really good. Yeah, I know and, Paul. Uh, and um, we were talking about the whole Carl Nassib story and when he yeah. came out. Now this year is really tough, and last year is really tough just because of COVID, and you don't have the access. Mm-hmm. And you may think what I'm about to say, you're going to be like, you're an asshole, and this is why I wouldn't talk to you as a reporter. I have to believe there are guys in that clubhouse, in that locker room, who are not happy about having an openly gay teammate on their locker. Have to be. And I think it's a job of a reporter to find that out. And I think nobody's really tried to do that. And I think it's, there have to be. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. There statistically have to be. I mean, this is a homophobia is a problem in our country and, and, and football is a cross-section of America. You know, I also do think that people outside locker rooms over forecasted the discord. Like, so I think everybody was like, it's going to be a distraction. It's going to be all this. His teammates are going to be, I think you hear more from, you know, Todd zero one nine six seven three nine on Twitter, like with a American Patriot emoji behind his name is like, why do we have to be talking about this? That whole thing. Like most players are really resilient. So even if, somebody is like, that's not the way I grew up. Like there are a million different guys in locker rooms, like a million different personalities. It is like a fucking daycare center on steroids. Like, like it is just every walk of life. And what did we see from Carl Nassib right after um, he came out? We saw him making plays the very next Sunday. It might've been the Ravens game. I don't remember. People were mobbing him. Like teammates were mobbing him. You know, I just think, more people care about how you go about things than what you're saying in an NFL locker room. Like we respect each other's differences way more than I think people give us credit for. Now, homophobia is a problem and undoubtedly you're right, but I think it would be hard to, to pin down who are the five really ignorant guys in a locker room that are harboring, harboring these really resentful, you know, kind of when Michael Sam came out. Yeah, I was there. I mean, I was there. I have people on the internet telling me what happened. I'm like, no, you fucking no idea. I have a unique perspective on this because I saw Michael, you know, I've been told that the NFL, that the Rams, we cut him because he, you know, he was gay and all this stuff. And that people were like worried about the experience he'd have in, in a St. Louis locker room in our D line room. We made sure he had a good experience. All we cared about was, could somebody play? You know, and the problem was our D-line room was so deep and so skilled. I mean, you're talking about a team that had 50-plus sacks for a couple years running. We had Robert Quinn. We had myself. We had Kendall Langford, Aaron Donald eventually, William Hayes, Eugene Sims, and some of these names, Nick Fairley eventually. Like Some of these names you're not going to know, but we were nine deep. We drafted a guy named Ethan Westbrooks, um, actually unsigned after we, we uh, squeezed Michael Salmon in the last round that just outplayed him. And there was maybe a spot left. Our D-line coach, Mike Walfe, used to have to fight to get eight up on game day, like eight defensive linemen up. We were one of the teams early on in the last decade that really started rotating guys like heavily. So Michael Sam didn't really have a, a – it wasn't the best situation for him. And I also don't think that Michael Sam was a, was an NFL defensive end. So the reason I say that, and again, people in their kind of like, I can't wait to argue everything has to be polarizing, you know, online kind of presence. 
if I were to say that, and actually I got in a discussion with somebody recently about this, they might think that I'm anti Michael Sam or that I'm, they might extrapolate that I'm homophobic because I'm pouring water on the fact that he, he was persecuted by the Rams. No, what I'm saying is that when the next gay player comes out, I don't want him thinking that, that Michael Sam got run out of the building because that's going to deter that player from feeling like they can live in their truth. And so I think that sometimes people miss the entire fucking point trying to find a boogeyman. And there was no boogeyman in St. Louis, at least maybe in some other buildings, maybe there's some guys that, and homophobia is despicable. I think even casual homophobia, which has been something like every teenager has gone through kind of like thinking that's normal. Like at some point you got to grow up. And I think that, you know, everybody in football can set a great example for like respecting each other's differences. And there's a lot of young fans watching and there's a lot of young fans who might be gay. And I think we can't in a search to like pin the Rams or the NFL as this boogeyman, which teams and the league are the boogeyman. Sometimes we can't just be in a rush to take a side and shit on that experiment that happened because that can create a real impediment for the next guy to come out or a fan watching at home who feels like they might feel empowered by five, seven gay players in the NFL who are out. You know what I mean? We might never get there because of the way the media handled that St. Louis thing and the way the general public handled it and the way we continue to talk about tough issues like this. There was a big, like we fought over the title of first active gay player for Carl Nassib. Like we, I sat there and watched people on the internet argue about that. What about Michael Sam? The word is active or details not important anymore. Here's why it's important. Let's talk it out. Because Carl Nassib is going to be playing in front of millions of people on Sundays in that big, shiny stadium. Michael Sam played four games in the Edward Jones Dome and then a few in Dallas and some in, I think, Montreal. But like, why do we have to make everything so complicated sometimes? And that's and, and when it comes to players living in their truth and that sort of thing, I think sometimes we, we've just kind of missed the mark on what the atmosphere is and how things have gone when it comes to Michael Sam or to uh, Carl Nassib and Carl Nassib. I hit him up after he came out and I said, cause I knew him through Bo Allen. And basically I know every white defensive end in the NFL, cause they've all been compared to me or Patrick Kearney, or now it's Joey Bosa. Thank goodness. Cause I'd much rather be compared to Joey Bosa, but like I knew Carl Nassib. So I reached out and said, Hey man, if you want a platform to talk about it, I'm happy to give you the platform. And this was at least initially he goes, bro, if it was anybody, I'd love to come on yours. But like, I am really trying to just make this a thing where I just kind of, you know, stand in it and, and move on. And I think the way he did it, there's a lot of different ways to do it. I respect them all, but it's undeniable that people respected that in that locker room. So I don't know how many people were angry at him, but I, I know that he had some people that were very proud of him too. I remember within the year after Michael Sam was cut, he was on dancing with the stars. And I remember thinking at the time, if you want to have an NFL career, this probably yeah. isn't the way to go. This probably isn't yeah. the way to go. Dancing with the stars. I don't know, man. Like, I just think here's the deal, whether it's with it's it's with almost anything, but if you can play, you can play. Right. And they're gonna find a way. And also, Michael Sam's not the first gay player in the NFL. He's the first openly gay player in Did the you NFL. know I'm obviously not yeah. his teams. Like yeah. in your career, were you aware I, this guy's probably gay or this guy's gay or blah blah? Uh, you know, you might hear rumors about somebody's personal life, just like you might hear about if right. they have heterosexual yeah. uh relationships or you might hear rumblings about somebody, but like, frankly, this is, I'm speaking for me. I didn't care. Right. You know, like I really don't care. Like not at all. In fact, 
I got a lot of respect for you. If you're able to live in your truth in a time, like, you know, now and be one of those trailblazing guys. And I think when people look at it and they're like, why are we making such a big fucking deal of it? I'm like, so that the next one won't be such a big fucking deal. Do you not understand how this works? Does anybody think through anything? All lives matter. (laughs) Yeah, dude, let's talk this out here. We already know. We already know that. So, I mean, people, my biggest problem is like, we just have become increasing the way we consume sports stories and disseminate them. Everything's become more automatically being confrontational pays, finding, you know, something to yell about pays and condensing pays. And, and that affected those stories too. I was talking to a colleague the other day and I told this person, I said, if I were writing stories right now, covering the NFL, the story I'd want to write about is Henry Ruggs and how one yeah. second and one decision can change a life. And I would find yeah. the family of the woman who died and I would talk to Henry Ruggs's family. And when I was at Sports Illustrated, these are the stories like that you were just all about, right? You would go out mm-hmm. to Vegas because it's a tragic, heartbreaking. And people who say there's nothing sad about Ruggs because he caused it are full of shit. I mean, wow, everything yeah. is tragic about it. Everything. Even though it is his fault. Everything is tragic about it. No, he didn't He didn't set out to do that incredibly irresponsible, stupid thing. I mean, he, he didn't try he did it. To, he didn't mean he to. Did it. Right. He did it. So, so like you just unless you learn from somebody like that, like what's the point of covering it? And so to your point, like, you know, if we're not going to, it's one of the drunk driving is one of the biggest problems in our country. Like what is it? A third of motor uh, vehicle deaths come from, you know, drunk driving incidents. Like if we don't dig into the story and figure out why it's so sad, then like, how do you learn from it? Cause we're supposed to be these role models on the other side of it. You got to learn from the mistakes. But the person said to me, um, I'm afraid if I wrote that story, I would be canceled. And I thought that's a sad place that we're in. If writers feel like a story like that, you know what I mean? Like that. And yeah. And I actually kind of get it like, Oh, I'm going to get attacked on social media and blah, blah, blah. And it's going to, you know, it's just going to tear me up. And I get it. Cause I, I was never a problem when I was writing for an actual magazine. There was no. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't get the feedback. It's the same with players. Like it's not like you could name search yourself. So, yeah. you know, you'd ask your friends and your bo- bosses and colleagues, how your column was, but like there was no, comment box in the magazine, you know, so you got a type letter every now and then or an email. And that was yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Type letter and email. Yeah. It's funny how that's changed, man. And and it is strange to wonder. I've, I've, I've wondered sometimes like if I say this totally logical and true thing, are people going to not cancel? Cause I don't, they're going to yell at you. You know what I mean? Like Aaron Rodgers brought up the cancel culture thing. Like there's no, it's not canceled. We played football Sunday. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. you're going to get yelled at for a couple of days. Uh, and that kind of sucks that people sometimes just an uncomfortably true thing. You're not allowed to talk about it. Uh, before I let you go, I want to throw a few real quick. I'm in a locker room devices at you from the media standpoint. Okay, good, good. I like that. Tell me how you're like these. Okay. Okay. Number one, I know I have to interview you. I know you went to Virginia my cousin also goes to Virginia. My cousin goes to Virginia right now. Hey, man, I just want to tell you, my cousin goes to Virginia. <laughs> Does that work? I mean, that's cool because Virginia is not like, a, you know, it's not a overly populated school relative to like, if I went to Ohio State or some very famous school, I'd probably be like, all right, buddy. You know, but because Virginia is like, Charlottesville is not the biggest place in the world. I'd, I'd enjoy talking about that for 30 seconds. So that works. 
Yeah, I think that works depending on the guy you're talking to or the college you went to. All right. Uh, number two, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, man, you had a great game today. Nice job. That was awesome. Hey, I got a few questions. Does that help me? Yeah. If I had a good game, if I'm the type that if I fell into two sacks and played like shit and some reporter came up to me and said that, I'd be like, come on, man. Like I didn't play that well, but some guys, yeah, they'll eat the compliments up. That's a nice icebreaker. And, um, the oldest trick in the book that we all use is this walking out of the locker room with you. Can we walk and talk? No, that's a good one. That is a good one. one. Yeah. That works for a lot of times. Yeah. Not always though. Cause sometimes people are like, yeah, no, um, It's this one. Okay. I know I need to ask you something uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Some rumor, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You were seen with, you know, Britney Spears or some crazy, right? Yeah. Okay. I will go softball question, softball question, softball question, Britney Spears. Mm-hmm. I set you up with a couple of easy questions. Yeah. And then I hit you. I know that shit's coming. I, I also like, I'm always thinking ahead, like, I know how people do. Even if I go on a podcast now, like somebody will just like blah, 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 blah. And even if I podcast sometimes, like I'd rather warm somebody up before I ask them the hard question. Of course. Like, so you pragmatically, it makes sense. You know what might help? And part of it is if a guy's not, how do you want to get that answer? Right? Like, do you want to get it like where the player feels like they fucked up and they had their foot in their mouth about it? Do you want to get like a very honest take on it? Do you want to catch him off guard or just see him score him? Like everybody's different. If somebody wanted to ask me a hard question and they were like, Hey man, are you cool if I asked you about this today? See, that's a good way to go about it. I always say, yeah, if I say no, I'm probably not going to respond well to the question anyways, but also like I'm quick on my feet. If you're trying to catch somebody in something, maybe pick a guy that's not so quick on his feet and do the, uh, like the, uh, the slow, 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 full speed thing. You know, but for me, if you got a guy that you think is pretty adept with the media, like just be honest with him. It's the best policy because you're not going to get a good answer if you don't want to give one. You got a better chance of a guy being like, yeah, thanks for being real with me. If you're like, hey, I got to ask you this tough question today. I want to give you a heads up. Are you going to be willing? If they say, fuck no, well, maybe you have your answer there. I once had an editor tell me um, I had to ask Derek Jeter if he was dating uh, Mariah Carey. Oh yeah. I was, I was horrified. Absolutely horrified. I literally went up to Jeter and who didn't know me. And I said, I'm just telling you, my editor told me I have to ask you this. And he's like, yeah, I'm not answering that. And I was basically like, I wouldn't either. It's not even my fucking business. And the deal is, is like, is the juice worth the squeeze? You're going to be in there with the, with the same player all year long. I bet you Derek Jeter was like, Oh, I appreciate you. Not just like put me on that spot. Probably so. And maybe you'll get the better answer later. Yeah. But it's again, it's the rush to get this one yeah. like that gets people in trouble. Like play this the long game. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's better for everybody. And let me ask yeah. you lastly. Yeah. Is there a good way for us? I'm asking you top of your head here. Um, like you guys, and I'm not saying you, but your industry of professional athletes, you're pretty much trained to speak in cliches to us, especially yeah. in college nowadays. They're always teaching kids yeah. how to respond, how to respond. If you're in a journalist perspective talking to an athlete, are there ways to break through that? I think it's more just like curating the right, the right people answering your questions. Like a kid that's fresh out of college playing on the Patriots. Like you're not going to get an insightful answer from like Mac Jones is set up right now. Not to give it. And I'm not blasting him at all, but like no question. Right. No question. And also it's his right to do that. But if you go to Devin McCourty, he'll tell you why Thursday night football is not 
not viable. You know, he'll tell you why it's a bitch to play Thursday night football. Why, you know, like you can get real answers from the right guy, even in inhospitable places, but you got to know who the right guys are, you know, and I just tried to make things easier for my team and for certain guys I liked in the media is like, I know they have a job to do. I know my teammates, like if I can answer these questions then they're not, not going to go over to Derek Barnett, you know? So sometimes like you might see a guy that's very available to the media and you might be like, well, he just likes talking to the media. I'm a team player in that way, but I also am thinking about like, maybe they won't hammer him with it, you know, and I, I can handle this. This kid might be young, might be fresh out of Knoxville, like a DB or Aaron Donald, AD when he got to St. Louis, like maybe if they're over at my locker asking about this tough thing, I can kind of jump on this hand grenade and it'll be easier for the rest of the guys. Um, so you'll get the most out of that guy. And uh, if you just play the slow game and don't insult their intelligence, that's the thing is like players don't like their intelligence insulted. You know what I mean? That's it's like universal. It's like people. I ran a uh, track and, and cross country at the university of Delaware. Yeah. And about 10 years ago, they cut, they got rid of the program. Right. Yeah. And in a lot of ways it feels like this thing you did never existed to begin with. And I was actually wondering, like you played professional football in St. Louis. There's no team in St. Louis. Is that the feeling? It's almost like, yeah, it blows, man. It really blows. Like it, it's just like, now I'm very lucky because of Philly, you know, and Boston, obviously. Um, but Philly, I really immersed myself in that city and like, the people. And I really just, I, I legitimately liked them. Like I legitimately felt like a, a bond and I appreciate, I think they knew what I was there for. They respected my grind and what I brought to the table. And I respected their role in that being the best football city to play in, in the country, in my opinion, it's, it was another symbiotic relationship. When I was in St. Louis for a long time, like I missed the NFL experience, you know, just plain missed it because because of the way we played, I'm putting it on us. We couldn't pack stadiums. Um, fans did their best to come out and support. But, you know, we weren't always full. And we weren't on TV. Like, I didn't play primetime games for a long time. So that sucks to put your whole life's work into something. Everybody missed the good stuff you do. Everybody figure out who you are at like 31, 32 when you're like charity rotational guy. You know, still a good player, but like fuck, you know, should have seen me five years ago, I guess. And then on top of that, the team just leaves. So you can't even go back and like, feel good about, you know, seeing the fans and cause I love people in St. Louis. I wish more than anything. There was still a stadium that you go back. I bring my kids to, I get kind of jealous of people that played in like a place that not only still exists, but a storied football franchise. There's a lot of different experiences you can have in the NFL. I just had kind of an interesting one. And uh, it's, there's a lot of good that I enjoyed that other guys didn't. And there's a lot of bad that I enjoyed that other guys didn't. And so at the end of the day, it's, it's fucking weird, but, uh, but it was all good. Well, um, I mean, you, I, I think your podcast is awesome. And I've told you, Thanks, I appreciate end. that. I think yeah. you're a great interviewer. I really do. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate Thanks. you doing this. Thanks. This one's good too, man. I enjoyed this combo. You got to come on mine. We got to do a home and home. Great. We can talk about Jackson. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> I want to thank today's guest, Chris Long, for joining me on Two Riders Singing. Follow Chris on Twitter at J O E L 9 O N E. And listen to the Green Mic Podcast. It's true. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Light Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.